Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I actually had not completed high school because I was training six, seven, eight hours a day doing pair skating. My goal was to be an international athlete, Olympic athlete. So I think at one point we were top 30 in the world when we were ranked internationally. But unfortunately, around the age of 21, I broke my kneecap in a competition. And I was a carded athlete at that point. So they took away all of my funding and sponsorship. And then that kind of just allowed me to look at my life in a different way and recognize what I should be doing next. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Liam Martin. He is a location independent serial entrepreneur, author, podcast host, and co founder of Time Doctor, which has become one of the most popular time tracking and productivity software platforms in use by top brands today. The software was designed to help individuals and organizations dramatically improve productivity and reduce time spent on distractions. Founded in 2012, today, Time Doctor is a seven-figure remote-first business with over 100 staff working from 32 countries. Liam is also a co-organizer of the world's largest remote work conference, Running Remote, an annual event attracting over 500 people from 40 different countries that teaches next-level, actionable strategies and tactics to manage and grow your distributed team. The conference is a gathering of business leaders who share what's working for them in running remote first organizations. And the goal is to provide education and tools that founders and professionals need to succeed in the future of work. Liam's mission is to empower people to work wherever they want, whenever they want. And his writing on the future of remote work has been published in Forbes, Inc., Fast Company, Wired, The Wall Street Journal, The Huffington Post, and many other publications. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. You know, it's interesting when you give... When I've done a lot of these podcasts, and I'm always blown away when people can kind of encapsulate your entire life's work in a paragraph. I don't know whether or not that's good <laughs> or bad, 
but uh, it's it's just sort of I get uh, a little bit of a flashback every single time someone intros me on a podcast. So thank you for taking me back um, from the beginning of the career to the end of my career again today. Well, I am super excited to have you here, man. And you have absolutely done a, a lot of stuff and really contributed quite a bit to this entire location-independent entrepreneurial movement that's going on here. I'm super excited to dive into a number of things with you. But let's just start off, first of all, by setting the scene in terms of where we're doing this today, because we are not in the same place. You are where today? I am in Ottawa, Canada, which is uh, the nation's capital between Montreal and Toronto. Yep. I know Canada pretty well. I went to high school in Buffalo, New York, right on the border by Niagara Falls. So we spent many a weekend up in Toronto, uh, hanging out uh, up there. So much love for O Canada. And I today am actually in the city of Irkutsk in Siberia. And I am going through Siberia on the Trans-Siberian Railway. We left from Moscow and we're going to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And I'm doing that on the Nomad Train, which is an organized program. And so we're, I'm rolling with about 30 other nomads and we're probably about two thirds of the way through the trip right now. I had heard about the Nomad Train quite a bit. And my biggest concern was, what's the internet situation? So I guess you'd be able to tell me in person, you're in it, it sounds great right now, but how reliable is internet from point A to point B? Yeah, so they actually really did a good job in thinking through the functionality of this. And I actually interviewed the Nomad Train co-founder, Maria Sorotkina, a number of episodes back, who's just an amazing serial entrepreneur who's on the forefront of the co-living movement uh, in terms of her business ventures and a number of other things, including co-founding the Nomad Train. So Maverick Show listeners know her. And uh, this is my first time doing the Nomad Train. And you know, they've really given a lot of thought to that question. And so the answer is that while you're actually sitting on the train moving, there's definitely no guarantee that you're going to be able to access the Wi-Fi or the data per se. But what they've done is they've structured in such a way that you do stopovers for, let's say, two or three nights at each of the major points along the Trans-Siberian Railway. And at each of the stopovers, they have access to co-working spaces at every single stop. There is a co-working space. And so you have access to the Wi-Fi and all of that. And so you basically you know, would know in advance exactly what the time blocks are. You know, there's a couple of really long legs, like the longest, there was one train leg that was like 37 hours, but usually they're 18 hours or less and they include an overnight, you know, so it's not like insane. So you can really schedule sort of your meetings or your calls because you'd know exactly the hours you're going to be on the train versus the hours that you're going to be able to have access to the co-working space. So you could schedule that in advance and they have broken it up pretty nicely so that people are able to, to work pretty efficiently, I'd say. It's such an incredibly romantic idea of taking that train across all of Russia and uh, something that I've always thought about, but it's just been that reliability issue. But yeah, it sounds like they're doing a really great job. I mean, it's it's interesting whenever I go to some of these digital nomad events, and I've been to quite a few Sometimes the internet is great. And sometimes, ironically, uh, for a digital nomad, the internet is not ideal. And I mean, for me, I do eight to nine calls a day. It's really the core component of what I do with my work. So that was so critical. But it sounds like Nomad Train has really figured it out. 
Yeah, they're definitely accommodating it and structuring it in such a way that, you know, you'd at least know in advance when you can do the calls and when you can't. So you can you can do that. But it's been great. And everybody's been having a blast. You know, super, super fun crew. We got about 30 of us here. Real interesting people. And yeah, the train experience is just amazing. I actually recorded a podcast interview on the train while moving from in the train car. We had, you know, just me and another uh, location independent entrepreneur that I wanted to interview, you know, just having a bottle of wine as the train's moving. And we just got the mics out recording the podcast. So it's, it's really been an awesome experience. Mm. And are there any kind of interesting characters? Like, I think there's always kind of some drunk Russian guy in the back of the train that's probably running around the cars and all that kind of stuff. Like that's the romanticism of taking the train like that, right? Totally. There's a lot of local experience that you will get both on the train and in the towns, right? And so what's also cool about the Nomad train experience is that it is run by local Russian facilitators who come with you on the train. So you have fluent Russian speakers with you at all times. And then at each of the stops, you have a local city team, right? One or two people who are from that local town in Siberia that are taking you on tours, taking you out at night, taking you to the restaurants and the bars and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really cool way to experience it. Man, that's pretty cool. Okay, well, I'm going to go sign out. <laughs> I love it. We'll drop a link, by the way, in the show notes for anybody else that's interested in uh, the Nomad Train and uh, give you a little discount if you want to uh, come on it. But it's been uh, it's been an awesome experience. So, well, let's let's jump into this, Liam, because I want to turn the tables here and learn a little bit about you. And let's just start maybe with your journey to entrepreneurship. A couple interesting things as you and I were having some of our preliminary discussions that stuck out to me. One is that you and I actually share an academic background in sociology, which I thought was awesome and amazing. So I'd love to hear sort of, you know, how that factored into your life trajectory. And then you also mentioned to me that you were a competitive pairs skater. And so I would also love to hear about that. And maybe just, you know, starting with that, where you grew up, you know, the role that skating played in your life, what that meant to you, and then, you know, how this whole journey eventually led you to location-independent entrepreneurship. Sure. So very quickly, I mean, around the age of 12, 13, as we had already talked about before, I'm Canadian. And in Canada, you do one of two things. You either play hockey or you figure skate. And around 13 years old, um, they offered uh, me the opportunity to be able to skate around with a whole bunch of cute girls with short skirts. And uh, I went for that option for some weird reason. And we ended up uh, doing quite well. Uh, I was probably, I think at one point, we were top 30 in the world uh, when we were ranked internationally. But unfortunately, around the age of 21, I broke my kneecap in a competition. And I was a carded athlete at that point. So they took away all of my funding and sponsorship. And then that kind of just allowed me to look at my life in a different way and recognize what I should be doing next. Thankfully, I got in on a prayer into university because I actually had not completed high school uh, because I was training six, seven, eight hours a day doing pair skating. My goal was to be an international athlete, Olympic athlete. So got into university. And the interesting thing about competitive sports, which I didn't recognize, is it creates such a sense of discipline inside of people that, and I had such a huge chip on my shoulder because I had not completed high school, I ended up doing very well academically and ended up doing, getting very good marks my undergrad and then going into graduate school at McGill University, which is 
in uh, Canada, it's one of the top schools, probably about a top 30, 40 school in, in the world. So ended up doing that. I had been in university for, oh, man, almost 10 years before they ended up giving me my own class. So most uh, graduate students towards the end of their career, they start teaching classes. And this was really kind of my goal of the last 10 years of education. I wanted to enter academia, ended up teaching a first year sociology class, started off with about 300 students. And I ended the semester with a little bit above 150 and uh, getting some of the worst academic reviews, professor reviews in the department's history. I remember walking into my supervisor's office and I said, uh, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, so <laughs> what should I be doing? And he said, you got to get really good at this teaching thing because you're going to be doing it over the next 20 to 30 years. So either get better at the teaching thing or figure out something else to do. So four weeks later, I threw a master's thesis under his door. I walked away from my PhD and I was out into the real world. And that actually turned into my first remote first business, which was an online tutoring business. So I realized that it was a lot more cost effective to be able to tutor kids on Skype than it was to be able to tutor them in person. And that grew to dozens of tutors throughout North America and Europe. And the problem that we were having inside of that business, which was doing well, it was doing about half a million bucks a year. We were having a major issue with regards to very clearly quantifying how long a tutor worked for a student. So we'd bill a student for 10 hours. The student would come back and say, I didn't work with my tutor for 10 hours. I worked with him for five. So we'd talk to the tutor and say, did you work for Jimmy for 10 hours? And the tutor would say, of course I did. So I don't end up having to refund the student for five hours and pay the tutor the full 10 hours. And I lost money on that deal. So that was really what was destroying the business. Enter Time Doctor, which was the tool to actually completely solve that problem. Basically, it's a time tracking tool specifically built for remote teams that totally solved that issue. So I started that software company with my co-founder, Rob. And uh, eight years later, we've got 100 employees in 32 different countries all over the world. Wow. So can you talk a little bit more about the development of Time Doctor and what your process was as an entrepreneur in terms of, you know, solving your own problem there? But then what was that process like to build that, to think through all the different aspects of that, and then to actually deliver the product that's available today? And maybe you could explain a little bit more about what the attributes of it are today. Sure. So Number one, before you even get started in a software product, you've got to scratch your own itch. That is so important when building a software product because you're going to be living with this thing for years. There's going to be some dark times in terms of building a software company. And you have to know, you have to have the passion to know that this is a problem that I had that was so deeply ingrained in me. So I'm very happy to be able to go all th through all this crap to be able to get to where I want to be. So that's number one, make sure that you're scratching your own itch. So with regards to Time Doctor, for us, it was that problem that I had inside of that first business. I knew that if I had a tool like Time Doctor, I could have probably taken the business to four, five, 10 million, theoretically, but I was stuck at that sub-million dollar mark just because I couldn't equate for these lost worked hours. So what basically Time Doctor does is I'm currently doing podcast with Matthew right now as a task inside of or on my computer. 
I'll then take that back to the podcast project that I have. So I have about 387 podcasts that I've done over the last two years. I see it all inside of my Time Doctor. I know exactly down to the penny how much each one of these podcasts has cost me, and more importantly, where I put my time. So how much time did I spend on Zencaster versus Gmail versus Zoom versus Skype versus Google Meet? And how much time did Vaishali, who actually is the one that preps all of these podcasts for me, how much time did she spend researching you as an example, Matt, getting me that, you know, two to three paragraph document that I have to know who you are, where you came from, the context of the podcast, all that kind of stuff. All of that stuff is documented and I know how much it costs me so that I can then know the exact ROI of anything that I do inside of the business for myself and then also for any other employee that exists inside of Time Doctor. Right. And for companies that don't necessarily need to or want to, let's just say, monitor their employees or things like that, where they're, let's just say, maybe more of a results oriented type of business where they pay for deliverables as opposed to like hourly things like that. Does Time Doctor still provide value to those types of companies? Sure. So the real kind of I I equate it to Fitbit for work. So we use a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence inside of the work that we do at Time Doctor to really understand not just how long you're working, but how efficiently you're working. So let's say that you had a thousand real estate agents, as an example, and you were able to tie that back to some type of CRM product and you know who's closing the most deals and who's closing the least amount of deals. So you would rank all of those real estate agents by deals closed. Our software would be able to tell you what makes a good real estate agent good and what makes a bad real estate agent bad. And then we'd be able to tell you, well, it looks like if you spend an extra two hours on the phone on average, you'll be a much better real estate agent because the most successful real estate agents seem to be spending 30% of their time on the phone, and you're only spending 15% of your workday on the phone. So we look at a lot of that data and try to figure out what the correlations are. And that allows you to become not just someone that works longer necessarily, which we don't personally agree with. Actually, in reality, working less, the average US workday is probably about two hours and 36 minutes by our data. And we have thousands and tens of thousands of data points in the United States. So two hours and 36 minutes on the computer, we realized that if you actually only spend about three hours working on the computer, you should probably go home (laughs) because you're already really overperforming in terms of the actionable work that you're putting in. And if you work more than that, it actually has really low returns past that point. Right. And well, it sounds like even at the executive leadership level, at the CEO level and things of that nature, just for people to be able to really audit their own time in a organized way so that they can evaluate what they are doing as business leaders and then reflect upon, you know, how much value they're getting out of where their time goes would in and of itself be valuable. Yeah. I mean, I do that. So I don't know if they do the same thing in the United States, but in Canada, we have cheap movie Tuesdays. So on Tuesday, Tuesday evenings, movies are half price. And I realized as I was looking through my data, 
that my Tuesday afternoons and evenings were reporting really badly. And this is because at around two o'clock in the afternoon, the phone calls start. So my partner, Marielle, will start calling me and saying, hey, do you want to go to Batman or Superman? And I'll say, well, I want to go to Batman. And she'll say, well, we're going to Superman. Does Fiona want to come to Superman? I don't know. Maybe you should call Fiona. Should we go to the 5.30 showing or the 7.30 showing? And it was this constant interruption that was pulling me away from my flow state focus. And I realized that actually taking Tuesday afternoons off actually improved my overall productivity, which is quite counterintuitive. No Fortune 500 company would agree with that. But yet, the data is very clear that me working less actually improves my productivity rather than reducing it. That's awesome. That's really, really interesting. Well, I think that's important, though, that, that people understand it's not just about trying to create a, a work culture of monitoring, you know, staff and, and getting into privacy and that kind of stuff. But it can be a kind of self-reflective way to audit your own time uh, and evaluate your own deliverables and your own productivity and therefore kind of optimize and, and that there's different ways to use the software. So I think that's really, really, really interesting. I would love to also hear a little bit about the development of the Running Remote Conference. I know you guys are coming up on your third one, I think. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about the origins of that conference, what inspired you to create it, and what is that conference all about? Sure. So Running Remote for us was kind of, it again, grew out of frustration and scratching my own itch with regards to understanding where remote work is going. We were at our company team retreat about two and a half years ago in Boracay in the Philippines. So every year, everyone in our company flies into one particular location and we spend one to two weeks just working on what we're going to do over the next year. So we were in Boracay and we said to ourselves, well, we need to hire another 50 people this year. How do we do that? Is there any best practices with regards to remote first teams? And inside of remote work, remote first teams are uh, people that hire remote first. And then in the counterpoint to that is on-premise teams. So for anyone that is an internet nerd, on-premise server racks are what we used to do before we had Amazon AWS and Microsoft Azure. Uh, no one would do that today because it would be ridiculous. And we have the same concept with regards to staff. So we had this philosophy of we want to be able to hire remote. We have to hire a whole bunch of people. How do we do it? We started Googling stuff. We looked at stuff and we said to ourselves, man, there's nothing out here. There's a lot of information on how to hire your first employee, maybe how to hire a virtual assistant or something like that, but nothing that is larger scale. And we knew there were a few companies out there that were hiring like this. So we said to ourselves, let's do a ready, fire, aim type of situation. We just cut a check for the venue. Um, the first year we did it in Bali, which was actually quite beautiful. It was a five-story high bamboo teepee in Ubud, Bali. And uh, we rented the space and we said, let's get a whole bunch of people to come. We ended up thankfully getting some fantastic speakers that were responsive towards what we were trying to do, which was really facilitating the growth of remote work. And how do you really do that is, you know, there's a lot of people that have some interesting perspectives on it. But for me, I really think it boils down to getting Fortune 500 companies and getting them to adopt a remote first work policy so that they can basically empower their employees to be able to work remotely if they want. That's where you really start to see remote work accelerate. So that's the mission statement of the company is 
uh, or their conferences to be able to get more of those companies understanding that remote work is not just a cool employee perk, but it's actually a complete change to what the way that we work. And I really see it as a movement that is going to make people happier, less stressed, more productive, and easier to work with. Well, let me ask you to expand on that a little bit and sort of give your vision of where do you see the future of work going over the next five years, the next 10 years? And I guess both in terms of employees and staff, but also in terms of entrepreneurs and business owners, where do you see it going? Sure. So I can make a very direct statement if you want. <laughs> I mean, we could we could go back to this podcast in 10 years. So in 10 years, I think that the majority of people that work on their computer will be working remotely. I would probably say in 10 years, it's going to be 80% of the workforce in the United States that works primarily on a computer, basically that works out of an office and works with a computer, will be working remotely. And the reason why I believe that is if you break down the unit economics of remote work, on average, a remote worker is 40% more cost effective than an on-premise employee. And that's a little bit more difficult to kind of tunnel into those numbers. When you look at it, a remote worker on average is about 22% more productive than an on-premise employee. And the other factor that not many people know about, which is really important for an employer, is that remote workers have a 30% higher retention rate than their on-premise counterparts. Do you know what the number one reason for someone quitting their job is at any type of you know office job? What is it? It is that they have a disagreement with their manager or their boss. That's the number one reason why people quit. It's not about the pay. It's not about the environment. It's not about, you know, they're necessarily their coworkers. It's their manager. They don't like their manager or their boss. It's inter-office politics. And remote work significantly reduces that, therefore making people happier, therefore increasing their retention. Whenever someone quits their job or you fire them in the United States, it costs on average $42,000 to replace a lost employee. So when you boil down the unit economics, They're 40% cheaper on average to be able to hire. And I see this catching on throughout the entire work industry. I think we're, as of right now, we're probably not in it, but within the next three months, we're going to be in another economic depression or recorrection in terms of the global market. And that's when I think these large corporations are really going to understand that, man, we've got to cut costs. Do we cut people or do we actually restructure the way that we're working? Let's try this remote work thing. I think it will be successful. And that's when it's just going to take off. So in doing three of these conferences and interacting so, you know, immersing yourself so deeply in this space and studying this so deeply, can you just talk about, you know, for the location-independent entrepreneurs or the aspiring location-independent entrepreneurs that are earlier stages of their business ventures, can you talk a little bit about any tips that you have for building and scaling remote businesses, how to think about that in terms of hiring and managing remotely? Sure. So I think the most important thing that I see when I deal with clients on the time doctor side and then just interacting with companies on um, the running remote side is you need to have your processes in place. So remote businesses have to act like big businesses faster. 
So any Fortune 500 company, if you have a thousand employees, you have standard operating procedures for absolutely everything. But if you have 10 employees, you probably don't have a lot of your procedures in place. However, if you're remote, you have to actually do that. You've got to put together your SOPs, make sure that they're solid. And that sounds really overbearing because, you know, I'm a small business owner. Maybe I'm doing a million bucks a year as an example in my business and turnover. I don't have time to be able to do those types of things. Well, there's a couple solutions for that. Number one, just use something like Google Docs. It's super easy to get started. I usually look at what are the biggest time sucks on my day? How can I turn that into a process and then actually document it, digitize it, and then give it to somebody else, delegate it to somebody else so that they can do it for me? That then pulls maybe an hour, two hours off of my workday. But secondarily, on top of that, if you are looking for more kind of complete processes or you want to go through this process in a deeper way, there's actually a ton of companies that are doing this already. Two companies that I can mention is Trainual. They actually have a SaaS product specifically for standard operating procedures for remote teams. So they're a fantastic product to be able to check out. And then another great story that we got from one of the years at Running Remote is Dimitri, who is the co-founder of GitLab. And GitLab has 800 employees, all remote. They're a remote first company. And if you go to about.gitlab.com slash handbook, you will actually see the 3,200 page SOP guidebook for how they run GitLab. So if you want to know how they do a product demo, it's in there. If you want to know the stock options that you get when you join GitLab, it's in there. Absolutely everything is in there. And Dimitri has encouraged everyone to steal everything inside of that guidebook. So you can pull it out. You can literally grab that information, put it into your own standard operating procedures, and then at least you've got something to work with. And then your team can kind of work on that and make sure that you are at least moving towards a point in which everyone knows what they're doing and a human being is not telling them what to do. So a document is telling them what to do. So that's what we do inside of our business. And it's so easy because we have people that, you know, I have people that directly report to me that have a 12-hour difference in terms of meeting times. So I can only meet with them for like one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening. And it's so powerful to be able to actually have those SOPs in place to know what everyone is doing and uh, no one gets confused. Can you talk a little bit as well about your hiring processes and maybe speak to it on two levels? The first is, you know, how do you conceptualize building a, let's say, 100 person team like you have now, you know, from start to finish, you know, employee number one, employee number 10, employee number 50, employee number 100? How do you conceptualize scaling, you know, and hiring that many people in, in the order that you hired them? And then also, what are your specific hiring techniques in terms of making sure that you get the best fit, you get the right team members in the right places? Sure. So that, that's a lot, but we, we could go through it very quickly. So when you're at like five people, that's like your founding team. You don't really need any standard operating procedures or anything like that. It's just you should be chatting with them almost every day. My co-founder is from Sydney, Australia. I'm from, as I said before, Canada. So we're on a 12-hour difference. And we still find time to be able to meet every single day to be able to chat about things. So have that team in place. Have them really close-knit. Once you enter 10 employees, 
that's when you're going to start to see different roles really start to pop up. So you can maybe start delegating some things inside of the business. Once you're up to 50 people, you've really got to have all your standard operating procedures in place. If you don't have those in place, you're probably never going to make it to 100. And then once you're at 100, 100 to 150 is what they call the tribe number. So that's when you stop. And this is just unfortunately inevitable. They stop being names and they start becoming roles or just numbers. So everyone needs to have very clear metrics and KPIs so that they know what they're doing. They know what their definition of success and failure is. And then you can basically monitor that from a quantitative perspective. In terms of hiring, I mean, that process is relatively easy. Uh, I mean, there's a couple differences between remote and on-premise hiring. We use a tool called Breezy, which is actually really easy. It's just a simple application tool. So whenever we have a new job posting, we actually do have a new job posting that I'm currently working on this week, which is for customer success. We will go out to all of our different job boards, flex jobs, remotive, we work remotely, tiny boards, everything that's like a remote first job board we'll put the posting on and then it all folds into Breezy so that all the applicants are in our project management system. We do not proceed with a short list unless we have at minimum 100 candidates that have applied. We just know that we're not going to find the quality of person that we're looking for if we don't have at least 100 candidates in the queue. And I'm looking at my current customer success posting right now and we have 121 candidates and it's been three days. So we're definitely in that place. So the actual HR director will do an initial review of all of the candidates. Then I will do a review for culture. So we usually, before we even look at the candidate, and a lot of the times we actually remove their names from the application process because that will inevitably bias you. There's a lot of data to be able to back that up. But we look at what have they done that's interesting and more importantly, show me an example of critical thinking because we work in a tech startup and you need to be able to think critically and adapt to different situations. So that's basically our culture fit. The other obvious one that we look at is do they like remote working and are they okay with it? I remember I actually had an interview with a guy who was a fantastic salesperson and he said, oh, I can totally sell Time Doctor for you. No problem whatsoever. I did $3 million in ARR last year at the last job that I was at. But I definitely want to work in an office. I think that working remotely is stupid. And I was like, okay, well, we're not the right fit, obviously, because <laughs> we're selling a product for remote workers. So that's not really going to work out for us. And so we figure out that culture fit. Then we break that down to a short list of five to six candidates. Those five to six candidates are interviewed by three individuals at the least. Then we actually end up hiring at minimum two candidates for a short one to three month work stint. And we'll tell them that they're actually still working, that two candidates have been hired and that you're not the final candidate. So we pay them for that. And usually we work with them for one to three months. During that time, we're able to identify is what they're saying in the resume reality. So can they actually execute on the work? And usually we'll always be surprised by that process. And within one to three months, we end up with one single candidate. After the three months of working, we have one single meeting 
uh, one last meeting, which is with one of their coworkers, their manager, and usually either me or my co-founder, Rob. And we all basically have a speak now or forever hold your peace type of conversation, which is why should we not hire this person? We're going to hire this person tomorrow. Can you tell me something right now that should stop us from making that decision? And then if everyone doesn't say anything and they say that they're great, they're hired and they're a full-time worker inside of Time Doctor. Awesome. That's really an important and comprehensive process. So thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you, and just to expand upon the concept of company culture that you mentioned, and I'd love to hear what company culture means to you and also how you see the concept of company culture evolving from what perhaps it meant in a traditional office space to what it means in a completely remote company and any tips you have for remote entrepreneurs on the importance of company culture and how to build it in a remote environment? Sure. So this is actually something that I talk about quite a bit because a lot of people ask, they talk about culture all the time, but they don't actually know what it is. And so you're a sociologist, so am I. So culture from a sociological perspective is a shared collection of activities or things that you do that other groups don't do. So my definition of it is what would appear weird to other people that seems like a regular thing to you. So we work remotely. That seems weird to the majority of people, but not to us. So that's a component of our culture. Our culture is focused through our mission statement. And that is that we want to empower everyone on planet Earth to be able to work wherever they want, whenever they want. So Time Doctor, uh, staff.com, running remote, all the products that we have, they all share that core mission statement. And if we get to a point in which everyone on planet Earth has that capability, obviously our work is done as a company and uh, we can all go home. So anyone that doesn't believe in that mission statement is really not someone that aligns with our culture, unfortunately. And we've had to make a lot of difficult decisions that have been really problematic towards the long-term trajectory of the business, or at least our perceived long-term trajectory of the business because of culture. So we've had to let go of salespeople that just really didn't believe in what we were doing or development people. Or we had a, a guy that was a relatively new hire that ended up going to one of our team retreats. And I think he had been hired for about five or six months. He went to one of our team retreats he really didn't like the team retreat. He didn't really, he wasn't really getting along with everybody. We kind of sat down and did a, a meeting with him in person. And within that hour, we realized that he shouldn't work in the company. We both agreed that he shouldn't work in the company and we flew him back home. Those are the examples. You need to be able to get people on the bus and off the bus. And then the bus is, you know, your culture. You need to know, are these people aligned with the weird things that you do and the mission that you have outside of just getting a check. So another thing that I did earlier on, which we don't really do at this point any longer, but it was really great to kind of align people culture-wise is within the first three months when we were working with somebody, we would just offer them cash to quit. So we would say like, how are things going? You've been working with us for three months. What do you like? What do you not like? Uh, what do you think about remote work? What do you think about the company that we're building? These types of things. Okay, great. So here's the deal. Do you want to keep working for us or do you want me to just give you five grand right now and you can leave? And we actually had two people take it. 
uh, which was which was pretty funny out of like the 60 people that I've offered it to. But that's great because that actually gets those people off the bus. So if you want to take the five grand now versus what we're trying to accomplish and you're not excited about that or you're not excited to the degree to which you wouldn't take five grand to be able to keep working on this. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Project, then we don't really want you working inside of the company. Wow. Can you also talk a little bit about how your teams collaborate across 30 countries, all different time zones? What sort of project management infrastructure and you know collaboration do you have and have you built in your company? So we collaborate very, very carefully. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually quite hard, to be honest with you, to collaborate across 32 different countries. So we've broken now into cells. So we'll have like, you know, a lot of our development is located in Eastern Europe, as an example. And uh, a lot of our sales is located in the United States. A lot of our support is located in Southeast Asia. A lot of our email marketing is located in Europe and Africa. So we kind of are almost like compartmentalizing different departments so that there's more, more overlap. But at the base level, we all do video calls. So really important to be able to do as many video calls as humanly possible. I have a hierarchy of communication for remote teams, which is in-person is better than video. Video is better than audio. Audio is better than instant messaging. And instant messaging is better than email. So we want to be able to always move up that chain and hopefully never roll down that chain. So if there's 10 messages that are exchanged on Slack, as an example, I will immediately try to turn that into a phone call as quickly as humanly possible. Because for me, I want to be able to make sure that we are moving the conversation forward. Because a lot of the times, these little instant messages, emails, these beeps and bops that we get pull us away from our flow state focus, pull us away from actually being in the zone and doing the deep work that we need to be able to move the business forward. So in essence, communication needs to happen as quickly and as efficiently as humanly possible. And that usually ends up meaning moving up that communication chain as quickly as possible as well. Awesome. Liam, I'd like to ask you a little bit more specifically about your sales team and any tips that you have for how remote entrepreneurs, in particular business owners, should think about building a sales department, anything from creating the right sales compensation structure, hiring the right salespeople, and then especially 
managing and optimizing a remote sales team? Yeah, I think I've failed at building a sales team quite a few times, actually. I think it's probably cost us at least a couple million dollars over the last couple of years in sort of like false starts. And I think we've got a model right now that's actually pretty good, that's working quite well. But there were some very unique challenges towards building remote versus building kind of an on-premise sales team. And we've kind of almost come to a quasi-hybrid model fundamentally. And for anyone that is doing remote sales at a really high level, I'd love to be able to hear more about it because for us, it's been a very difficult part of our business. But we started with basically me running out to Southeast Asia because a lot of our clients are BPO companies, which are business process outsourcing organizations, and me doing face-to-face sales. And that was actually really successful, so successful in fact that we thought, well, let's build a sales team. So went out, got a guy from San Francisco that I believe was doing sales for Oracle, doing a couple million dollars a year in sales, and brought him to Manila and sent him up with a condo. I spent three months working with him. He had a sales team of about eight or nine people that I had actually built up before that point, before him. And just sort of after those three months, handed him the keys to the team, said, here you go, make me tons of money. And three months later, he comes back saying, hey, I can't do this anymore. This isn't for me. I'm going back to San Francisco, which was actually a real kick to the teeth because that was a quarter of my time out of the game. And then also I had to readopt that team back inside of the organization. So I had to lead that team again. And for anyone that's running a remote tech company, realistically, you definitely wear a lot of different hats And I thought I could have put the VP of sales hat down, but unfortunately I had to pick it up back up again. Worked on that for about three to nine months. We tried different team leaders inside of that organization, tried a lot of different methods. And then we basically boiled down to the current team leader right now, which is Mick. He developed a process where we take a salesperson that we might want to hire. So we've got SDRs, BDRs, and we've got AEs, and then we've got our research team. And we're pulling in all of our AEs and our SDRs and BDRs now actually into a physical office for three months. So if someone wants to work with us, they'll actually get flown to Canada. They work with Mick personally for one to three months, and they either need to hit their quota Actually, so there one of two things will happen. Either you're going to hit your quota and go back to your country of origin within three months, or you will not hit your quota. You will go back to your country of origin within one to three months, but you won't have a job. So their goal is to actually hit quota in front of Mick. And then once they can hit that quota, then we send them back to their country of origin and they work that particular territory. That has seemed to have worked for us up until this point. But it's, again, sales are one of those things where we originally have a self-serve SaaS. So our lifetime value is relatively low. It's only a couple thousand dollars. So it's a difficult model to run a sales team off of. But it has been working because of this new tweak that we made, which was really doing that face-to-face time with that salesperson. And then once they can work successfully in front of Mick, then we know that we have the confidence to be able to send them back to their country of origin. And generally, they keep their quota after that point. 
when you say territory, are they selling remotely or do they have an actual geographic territory within which they're selling? So they are selling remotely in the sense that they're all selling from their their computers, but they have a territory based off their time zone. So that's the way that we do it. Got it. And also too, like all of our Colombian sales happens through our Colombian salesperson, which is sounds pretty logical, right? Our Brazilian sales, which is in Portuguese, happens through our Brazilian sales rep, our Brazilian AE. So that's another massive advantage for being remote first, which is you can actually just deploy different territories and you know that, hey, when you pick up the phone, it's actually going to be a Brazilian Portuguese speaking guy that's going to be answering the phone. Right. And can you talk a little bit as well about how your sales and marketing teams work together in terms of generating the leads for the salespeople and what types of marketing tactics are working for you right now? So, yeah, I think it would be a little disingenuous to be able to say that we have lightning in a bottle. About 70% of our business is through referrals. So that is, and if you're not there now, then how do you get to that? Which is probably the question that you really want to get to. So we've really overcommitted on SEO. Maybe not overcommitted. Our biggest funnel is SEO right now. And I actually think in terms of dollars and cents, if you own a business over, let's say, 10 years, SEO is still the best way to be able to acquire a customer, the most cost of, uh, cost-effective way to acquire a customer out of any other method. Because like when you buy Facebook ads, as an example, which we still do, you're literally renting leads, right? You're buying leads this month. But with SEO, you build the content, you rank for a particular keyword that you know your customer is going to also search. And then you basically pick up those dividends over the months and years from that particular keyword. So it takes a while to be able to set up, but once it's up and running, it really does produce fantastic dividends. Outside of that, I mean, we have the running remote conference. So I actually think conference marketing right now is pretty hot. And if you have the free cash to be able to commit to it, it's a big commitment. We had, I believe the first one cost us 200,000 to start and we ended up breaking even, but that's a big commitment to be able to start out. And if you don't have that type of cash, I would definitely have it in reserve. But the conference has been another way for us to be able to build out partnerships with even larger partners that wouldn't have really spoken to us in the first place that now speak to us because we run a conference on remote work. Can you share any specific SEO tips for business owners that want to improve their SEO strategy or they want to deploy more resources towards SEO per the advice you just gave? What tips do you have for effective SEO strategies? Sure. So there's actually an entire free amount of content that we give away at youtube.com slash running remote. I believe it's about three hours of me and my content editor sitting down and breaking down everything that we do. But I'm going to give you kind of the short version, the five minute one, which is we make sure that we've structured the team properly. And then by extension, they all have very clear compass metrics KPIs that are associated with every aspect of SEO. So 
we have our content editor, we have our SEO manager, and we have myself. And those three people, basically those two people report to me. And then every month we get together and we build out all of the keywords that we're going to deploy over the next month. So we're always about a month ahead. We take those keywords. We know, number one, can we actually rank for them? So we use a tool called Ahrefs, A-H-Refs, uh, to be able to check all of that data. Or could we rank for that keyword? Anything that has a keyword difficulty of below 20 and it's out of 100, we can usually rank in the top 10 for. And then also, is this a keyword that our customer is actually going to search for? So recently, we just ranked number one for virtual assistant companies. So if you run a virtual assistant company, you probably are going to want to use Time Doctor at some point. So that's definitely a keyword that we would spend time working on. So we write all of those articles up by our contract writers. We usually have, I think we have about a dozen contract writers right now. We put out bounties for all those keywords. They write those particular articles. At minimum, it has to be 3,000 words. Realistically, it has to be more than 3,000 words for it to really rank well in the search engines. Then once that's done, we take it to our linking team. So our researchers use Ahrefs again, and they identify 500 linking opportunities at minimum for a keyword. The way that we do that is we grab the top 20 results off the SERPs, which is search engine results page, which you basically, you type in a keyword like virtual assistant companies and you look at all of the people that are on those pages. We not only grab the people that are on those pages, so we grab, we basically turn those 20 SERP links into email addresses. We also grab all of the people that have linked to that page and we grab all of their email addresses. So those generally work out to about 500 people. Then we throw that into a tool called Buzzstream. Buzzstream is basically like a social CRM. So if I've interacted with you before and someone else actually wanted to reach out to you, once you type in that email address or that URL, you could actually pull in that context so that we know that we're not kind of stepping on each other's toes. And we just start an outbound campaign. And the way that we do that outbound campaign is we usually do two to three minutes of research into each person that we're going to be reaching out to saying something like, and this is usually what most email cold outreach is like, hey, human X, I really liked article X and you linked to, uh, you linked to it on at this time with this link you should link to my thing. It's better. That generally doesn't work. You're probably going to get a success rate of between one to 3%, which actually is not that bad. Our success rate is 10 to 15%. And the way that we do it is we usually say, hey, person X, we saw that you linked to this article from this article. And we would love it if you could link to our article. We've actually already prepped the link or the paragraph that you can add inside of your article. We also saw, based off of your site, that you're really trying to rank for this particular keyword. And we can actually rank for that keyword because we already have an article that we think is co-associated with the article that you want to rank for. So we already went ahead and we put in a link for you. So we've literally given you a link. You can check it out. Here's the page. Here's where we link to. We are a DR78 site, which is a very powerful website. And we'd love to be able to work with you. 
And that usually gets a much higher response rate because we've given them something before we've asked for something, which is a lot more transactional. And a lot of SEOs will say, oh yeah, okay, well, these guys actually linked to me. Of course, I'm going to link back to them. Once all of that stuff is done, the way that we measure that is through our linking team. We have a metric, which is cumulative domain authority. So if you run an SEO team, and you just tell people, get me backlinks, they can absolutely do it, but it's going to be for DR 10 to 20s, which is basically, it's a measurement of how important your website is. 100 is Google, one is a brand new website. So they're going to get low difficulty websites to link to them. So that's actually a pretty bad measure. What we decided is we're going to actually add in the domain authority as the way to measure success. So if you get a link to a DR 10, that's 10 points. If you get a link to a DR86, which I know we just got yesterday, which was from Salesforce, that's 86 points. So we add up all those points and we basically run it like a sales team. At the end of every month, someone gets a bonus for the highest cumulative domain authority. That's about it. The much longer version is actually on youtube.com slash running remote where we have the entire course, but um, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, we will link up to that full video on YouTube in the show notes. So folks can just go to the com and just go to the show notes for this episode and we will put up the entire extended video there. I know that I'm definitely going to go watch it myself for sure. Uh, so we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Can you talk a little bit more about the running remote conference? The next one that you guys are going to do, where is it? When is it? Who is it for specifically? Who should attend and what will they get out of it? Sure. So next one is going to be end of April in Austin, Texas. And I've learned that you really have to define who your customer is not before you really figure out who your customer is. So this is for building and scaling remote teams. So you're not going to learn anything about being a freelancer or being a digital nomad. This is very specifically if you manage remote employees or you're interested in switching over to a remote first work policy, this is definitely the conference for you. And we're going to be talking about a ton of stuff about how to hire people, how to make sure that they're happy, remote company culture. We're also going to shine a lot of lights on big stories connected to remote work to show that it's possible. Last year, as an example, we had Marcy Murray, who's the director of support at Shopify. And she talked about how she went from zero to 2000 remote support reps in under three years. She had no remote work experience whatsoever. And they went to, in essence, what is now a remote first company. A lot of people don't know this, but like Shopify has many more remote employees than they do employees in an office. So it's not just for small businesses, it's for much bigger businesses. And I actually see this conference as a meeting space for what is going to be a massive shift in the way that we work, which is working remotely. So if you want to kind of understand that trend before it becomes something that everyone has to do, this is definitely the place to get your crash course. Awesome. Well, we're going to link up to that as well in the show notes. So you can just go to one place and get all the links to all the stuff that we're talking about, including um, all the details on the upcoming Running Remote Conference. Liam, I also want to ask you a little bit just to sort of switch gears here. I want to ask you about travel. It's my favorite subject, man. 
I love it, man. There's different ways people can exercise their location independence. Some people just choose to work from home, uh, but some people choose to travel the world and see the world. And I know you have done a lot of traveling. And I want to just start off with a macro level question and just ask you to begin with, why do you travel? What do you get out of it at this point in your life? What does travel mean to you? Oh, boy. I can tell you what just came to my head immediately, which might sound a little weird, but I think it makes me less of an asshole. Uh, I think it makes me a more interesting individual (laughs) that is not just stuck in my little slice of culture, which is Canadian culture. I'm able to expand out into different ways of looking at problems, different ways of dealing with issues. I think that travel makes you a more, it adds more layers to your onion. And I think that those types of people are generally people that I like to spend a lot of time with. And I think that they think deeply about issues. They think about issues from multiple perspectives. And I generally like hanging out with those people. So I'm realizing, well, wouldn't I want to hang out with myself more often? You know, if I was a person thinking in a party, I'd really want to hang out with someone that's been to 60 countries as opposed to someone that's been to two. And so that's kind of the gift that I think travel gives you is it makes you a more interesting and I might even say kinder person. And how are you currently structuring your lifestyle in terms of travel cadence, how much you're traveling, how long you're staying places, and how are you selecting the places that you're going? So I would use two methods for that. I do a lot of small trips for work. So I think I'm going to be in Ireland. I'm going to be in Dublin, Istanbul, Cairo, San Diego, and Vegas over the next month just kind of two-day zips, and that's for work. But then I can get a little bit of a taste of that environment, figuring out whether or not I want to be there longer term. My long-term commitment is I spend at minimum three months, usually in the winter. So we start around January, and we end around March, April in another country. Last year, I think we did it in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, The year before that, I think it was Bali. The year before that, I think it was the Philippines. I think it was also Medellin the year before that. So we just kind of choose a location and we go there. And it's really important when you talk about being a digital nomad. I know for me, being a digital nomad is super fun, but it's also a massive distraction. So I don't travel places on a very quick basis. I'll usually spend at minimum one month there, and that allows me to be able to get like a one-month rental, as an example, which is uh, a lot more cost-effective, number one, but then also just allows me to get into the flow of actually living there like a local, which I also think just adds such an interesting extra component to the way that you see a particular culture or society. So once you can kind of just get into the trend of, hey, I'm going to go to this co-working space every day, or I'm going to go to this coffee shop every day, and I've got my little apartment, I've got good internet, maybe I hang out in a cafe, or I go to this local restaurant, I start to develop a relationship with the people that are in my local area. That's when you really start to understand what a culture is all about. And I don't think you can do that when you're just sort of popping in for one or two weeks. So I like longer stays basically for one to three months per year. 
Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I agree with your rationale. And that's exactly what I do as well. So sometimes I'll do sort of a quicker paced sort of experience or event like this nomad train experience in the Trans-Siberian, which is obviously moving at a quick pace. But as soon as that's done, I'm going to go to Bangkok for a month, then I'm going to go to Bali for a month, right? And I'm going to live places usually at least, you know, that one month plus period for all the reasons that you just said. So yeah, I agree with that entirely. Let me ask you this. What have you found to be the biggest challenges of working while remote, while traveling, while living in other countries, the biggest challenges of the nomad lifestyle? And how have you learned to mitigate or control for those? Well, I would say biggest one would be protection from loneliness. I think that people get pretty lonely on the road. Uh, This seems to be a trend that I'm seeing with a lot of digital nomads. The way that I protect myself against this is number one, I travel with my partner of the last six years. So me and her, we travel the world together. This was something that I think is important for at least my mental health. And then secondarily to that, it's just creating those connections as quickly as possible. So I actually think even, I mean, 10 years ago, none of this stuff existed. Today, you've got Selena's, you've got co-working spaces, you've got Regis's, you've got WeWorks, you get into a co-working space somewhere and almost immediately make those types of connections, which I think is really great in suppressing the loneliness factor of working remotely. Outside of that, it's just sort of realizing that you have everything in place so you can stay productive and then fight all of these other variables that usually kind of, I find distractions are probably my biggest challenge right now when I'm working as a digital nomad and traveling because you want to do all of these really exciting things, but I have to put in my eight, nine hours a day And I've made it a form of discipline for me to be able to say, I'm going to go in to a co-working space as an example, show up at 10 and not leave by 4 or only leave after 4 p.m. So it allows me to really have a good framework in place to know I'm still doing this no matter what. It doesn't matter what great opportunities come by. I'm going to actually make that hardcore work commitment. And then outside of that, I can do whatever I want. Awesome. I want to ask you to expand on your productivity habits and tactics a little bit. I mean, I'd love for you to start even with just, you know, do you have morning routines that you do every morning? Are you on the same time frame every single day? And then how do you, do you have evening routines? And sort of how is your day structured to optimize your productivity and your output? Sure. So biggest thing that I do is the day before I write down everything that I'm going to do the next day. And what I've done recently was actually been a fantastic growth hack for me is I put it into my calendar. So I showed up to this meeting because we had both set it in our calendar and I knew that I was going to show up for this particular meeting because I don't want to, I want to respect your time and and everyone else's time in putting together this meeting. So I do the same thing for pretty much everything else. So after this, I actually have a answering email block for about an hour. Uh, I've done three podcasts this morning. I did our company all hands meeting at 7 a.m. I did three podcasts, which is you're the last one for the morning. And then I'm doing email for an hour and I'm blocking that out. And that's been such a huge productivity hack where I respect 
my personal time blocks as much as I respect a meeting time block. So that's been huge for my overall productivity. Secondarily, once I'm actually like in a separate location, as I said before, I'm going to make sure that I'm sticking to all of those things that I'm doing. And then obviously, I have Time Doctor, which is tracking all of this data. So I'll be able to go back and say, well, how much time did I actually put in? And am I deploying my time effectively? Or am I just staying busy? which is uh, one of those things that a lot of people unfortunately have where they'll just kind of stare at their computer, play around with Facebook and YouTube all day long, but they won't actually get any work done. I can see that with Time Doctor and know what ratio of my time I was productive and what ratio of my time I was unproductive. And I always try to, obviously, I usually stick to about an 80% productivity uh, metric per day. Awesome. How do you handle stress, I guess, both in your personal life, but also particularly in business and as an entrepreneur. Any business owner is quite familiar with this concept of the entrepreneurial roller coaster and things go up and then they go down. And so when you have a major business setback or you have something that is really stressful, how do you, one, manage and handle stressful situations and stressful moments? And then two, how do you approach a business problem or a setback? Mm, okay, so outside of like Lagavulgin and crying, I think it's really important to not put all your eggs in one basket. You need to be able to make sure that your self-definition as a person is not just one-dimensional. So if Time Doctor is down, as an example, and we haven't hit our quarterly targets, then am I really down in the tubes about that? Or am I thinking to myself, well, running a road is actually doing quite well. That's a high point. Or, hey, you know what? I was really good at doing squats this month, and I hit a new PR, as an example, in my squatting at the gym. You need to be able to have all of those different variables in place to protect yourself against one thing going wrong because something will inevitably go wrong and you just don't want that to be your world when it does go wrong. Outside of that, I use critical thinking. That's probably one of the best frameworks that I've encountered for understanding how to get out of difficult situations. I just Google critical thinking framework and you'll probably be able to go through that entire process. But one of the biggest ones is like, what assumptions am I making with from my conclusions? So I always think about that when I have a problem that's happened inside of the business. Why did this campaign not work? What assumptions was I making inside of the conclusions that I made that were incorrect? And can I study those and understand whether or not maybe some of those are not correct? Maybe they are incorrect conclusions that I'm drawing on. And I need to change that to be able to be more successful. Outside of that, just keeping a happy perspective, making sure that you have people around you that can keep you up. Because a lot of times when you look at entrepreneurship, I mean, you are the person that's running everything. I'm responsible for a hundred different employees and their salaries and their well-being and their families. So it's a very important responsibility and it's important to counterintuitively not necessarily get it down to let bad things get you down too much when you end up having something negative happen inside the business. Awesome. All right, Liam, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Sure, yeah, I'm all set. Let's do it. 
<laughs> Let's do it, man. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has really influenced you significantly over the years that you'd most recommend people read? Peter Thiel, Zero to One. It is the best framework you can think of for building a very large business. And you should definitely read the book, but the idea that exponential businesses are the only ones that you should build is such an important thing if you want to build a tech product. So figure out a big blue ocean of customers, something that's very, very different, and then completely dominate that market and become the number one player in it. All right. If you could have dinner with one person who's currently alive today in any field, any person currently living today, who would you choose and why? It's going to be kind of funny, but it's like it's Peter Thiel's business partner who wrote Zero to One was Elon Musk. So they both built PayPal together. I would have dinner with Elon Musk. I actually think he's the Da Vinci of our time. He's not the most sociable person from what I've read and seen about him. But I think he thinks about things in a way that no one else is currently thinking of. His first principles concept is such an important framework that I use quite a bit in understanding how to do business. And I just love his vision of the products that he's building and the companies that he's building because he's solving a lot of the world's problems. I think in a thousand years, no one will really know who someone like Steve Jobs was, but we'll, we will remember who brought us to Mars, made us energy independent, and uh, moved the world off of gas cars to electric cars. All right. If you could give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, knowing everything you know now, and you could go back in time, what would you say to 18-year-old Liam? So I know everything I know now. Right. Mm, okay. Liam, there's going to be this thing called Bitcoin. Buy as much <laughs> of it as humanly possible. And at around 20, once it gets up to about 15,000, 16,000 US, sell it all. That's the piece of advice that I would give to That's myself. Amazing. That's amazing. That's a great answer. All right. We're going to leave it there. That's an awesome answer. That is a very creative way to approach the question. I love it. All right. We're going to close that with a few travel questions. What is one travel hack, or it could be even a travel item that you always uh, bring with you on a trip? Either way, one piece of travel advice. Uh, I'm going to be a two-parter. Best piece of software is TripIt, and it allows you to kind of conglomerate all of your different travel tickets into one platform. So if you email yourself a ticket, it will just push into TripIt, which is amazing. The tool that I use the most for travel, which I've loved, is my Anchor USB-C uh, 20,000 milliamp hour backup battery. It charges not only my phone, but it also charges my MacBook Pro through USB Type-C. And it will give me with a fully charged laptop, it's probably going to give me about 30 hours of work time. So there is no international flight I've taken that has beaten this battery yet. It's the best physical battery to take with you. Awesome. All right, Liam, what are your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to? I'd say number one is Ubud, Bali. 
it's so relaxing there and a very spiritual, but I'm not a very spiritual person, but I loved Ubud. The, the lifestyle is very relaxed. Second top location is, uh, I'd probably say Montreal, Canada. One of the best places in the world, in my opinion. That's why I spend a lot of time here. Third location would probably be, man, um, just in terms of a location, I had such a fantastic time at the Great Pyramids in Cairo. And for me, I'm a history buff. I just love looking at these things. I remember the first day that I ended up being there, I had a hotel room that allowed me to look on the pyramids relatively up close. And I sat there from maybe four in the afternoon till like 10 at night, just staring at these things. No matter how big you think it is, it's bigger when you see it. And it's just amazing that these things are 6,000 years old and they've survived all of kind of like human civilization and they're still here. So I love looking at those things and I'd look at them all day long if I could. That's amazing. Yeah, Egypt has a really special place in my heart as well. I lived in Cairo for about nine months and it was in the first year that I started nomading. And that was about the third time that I had been to Cairo. And that when I lived there for nine months, I got to explore all of Egypt. And there's a lot of other absolutely amazing and really, really epic stuff as well in other parts of Egypt when you get to explore even more of the country. So yeah, totally agreed with that one. Now for people that are going to Bali, by the way, to do a long-term stay, do you recommend Abud over Changu or other places in Bali? I do, but it depends on what type of person you are. So if you want to get quiet and you want to get relaxed, Ubud is the place to be. If you want to hang out with a lot of other digital nomads, if you want to have tons of different co-working spaces and CrossFit gyms and, and all that kind of stuff and party, Chenggu is absolutely the best place. Ubud is the opposite of that. There is no party, which is great for me because I'm just a relatively boring guy. I just kind of, I, I like a pool. I like a nice villa. And that's, that's my philosophy. Awesome. All right. Last question, Liam, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the highest on your list you most want to see? I'm very interested in checking out Dublin, actually, which is top of mind because I'm going there in two to three weeks, which is going to be cool. I've always wanted to go and travel Africa and do a real sort of good safari through Africa. And maybe not a safari, that's the wrong word, but like travel to a couple different countries in Africa. I think it's one of those continents that we don't really pay attention to. And I'd love to be able to check that out. And I think probably my third one, you see the beauty of like running a remote business is I can just choose and do it. So in January, I'm going to go on a tour of India with a couple other people in the company. And we're going to be working all together. So uh, that's another one that's been on my bucket list, but I've, I'm going to be locking them all down, at least two out of the three uh, within the next year. I love it, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I studied abroad in Dublin, lived there for a year, went to Trinity College and I've been back a number of times. It's a super amazing city. I'm sure you'll have a blast. And then, um, yeah, if you want recommendations for Africa, I actually just spent five months this year in uh, Africa. I was in 
South Africa, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, Ghana, and Senegal for about five months. So it was super, super, super amazing. I wanted to see the West of Africa because last year I was in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania and got a real taste of East Africa. And so now I'm just, I'm totally hooked. Like I'm just planning like my next trip back to see more of it because it's an absolutely spectacular continent. So yeah, if you want any tips, definitely uh, hit me up for that, my friend. But I want to, yeah, definitely. And I want to thank you very much for being here and, and going as deep as you did with all of the kind of behind the scenes stuff for how you do everything that you do. And I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you on social media and learn more about what you're up to. We're going to link everything you say up in the show notes, but go ahead and tell folks how they can uh, get a hold of you. Sure. If you want to check out Time Doctor, go to timedoctor.com. There's a 14-day trial for that. Runningremote.com is the conference. And then if you want to get in contact with me, one of the best forms of social media I believe that exists today is YouTube. And so we've put together a ton of free content on youtube.com slash running remote. All of the talks are actually completely free from running remote and they're, they're being put up there. So you can check that out. And if you comment, if you send me a message through YouTube, I'll be back to you within hours. It's the new project that I'm kind of working on because I think that these platforms like Facebook and Instagram, they kind of create too much distractions for me. And I find that YouTube is the most honest version of social media. I feel the ability to be able to communicate to people and have real connections. YouTube is really creating a fantastic environment for that. So I've been all in on YouTube the last couple of months. I love it. Awesome, man. All right, we're going to link everything up in the show notes so you can go and get all of those links to everything we discussed at one place, themaverickshow.com, and just click on the show notes for this episode. They will all be there. Liam, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.